Well, as you turn back again to um, 1 John chapter 2, we will pick up, and, and you're, you're probably by now starting to notice as we're studying through this epistle, uh, it's becoming increasingly clear that the Apostle John is not one who uh, is unclear. He, co- he communicates to us in concrete absolutes. He's not vague. He's not drawn to speculation. Uh, there aren't many gray areas in this book. And uh, we know that John has written this letter so that we know that we can know things. He wants us to be certain of our faith. He wants us to be certain of our spirituality. And he wants us to be sure of our doctrine. And the result of reading 1 John should be that it will turn your hope-so salvation into a no-so salvation. John's already told us that we know that Christ came in the flesh. We also learned that the blood of Jesus cleanses the Christian from all sin. And then later on in chapter 5, we will find out that you can know that you have eternal life. We've also discovered, by the way, that this letter originates from a man who walked and talked with Jesus Christ. Sometimes I don't think we grasp that. This letter is first-hand testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the value of the written page. It's an immensely stable platform of communication. By comparison, we probably all remember those uh, illustrations in grade school where you would pass something ear to ear in a class where no one else could hear it. By the time you got to the other side of the room, the story had changed. That's oral communication. It presents a much greater potential for mistakes. You know, when we pass something from ear to ear, we either have the capacity to miss a word from someone who has passed it to us, or possibly worse yet, we face that temptation to add our own commentary to it before we send it on to the next person. That's not nearly as problematic with the written page. And you know, detractors of the Bible love to discredit Scripture for how old it is. And they love to speculate on how many alterations and errors must have occurred over the past 2,000 years. But did you realize As this time passes, we are more and more certain all the time that the Bible is a preserved Word of God. That's correct. As the years pass, we don't grow further from the assurance that the Bible is the Word of God. We actually draw closer to that assurance. That's because every time that the spade of the archaeologist hits the dirt over in the Middle East... They're pulling up older and older manuscripts, older and older fragrance of manuscripts, along with their discoveries. And in fact, we we now have a variety of ancient papyrus Bible manuscripts that originate within the first hundred years of the lives of the apostles. A couple of them are even within 50 years of the apostles. And though we... We'll probably never find that original copy of 1 John because it was handled and recopied and recopied so many times. We have found one thing for certain. Our modern Bibles today that are printed on modern presses say the exact same thing as those letters that were found to be copied over and over again by the early church fathers within 50 years of the apostolic era. 
Nothing has changed. God has preserved the Bible. And the words that you read today are the words of a man who sat directly next to Jesus Christ during the Last Supper. This is first-hand testimony of Jesus Christ. And today John's going to help us discover how we can know that we know Jesus personally. Did you realize there is a litmus test that you can take to know that you know Jesus as Savior? And you know, that's very important because there's a whole lot of people that question whether or not they're a Christian. They question whether reports of Jesus are real. They question whether or not they're going to heaven. But Jesus didn't come to die on the cross and then rise again so that we can guess maybe, perhaps, by chance, maybe, possibly, could, might someday go to heaven. God's Son died for our sins that we can know that we have eternal life. So when people ask you if you are a Christian or whether or not you are saved, you're supposed to not answer with, well, I hope so. The pastor Adrian Rogers, the late pastor Adrian Rogers, used to say, a Christian's not supposed to walk around in his life all hunched over like a question mark. The Christian is supposed to come and walk around with confidence, tall, standing straight up like an exclamation point. And the Apostle Paul wants you, or Apostle John, excuse me, wants you to have that confidence today. This is one reason he opens chapter 2, verse 1, with this phrase of endearment. You know, he's like a a loving father or a grandfather now, well-aged in his last years. He's concerned about his family. That's the family of Christ. He's concerned about our welfare. He's concerned about the negative effects that sin can have on our health, our family, and our future. He's also concerned about your usefulness to God. He's concerned about the damage that that sinful behavior can do to your witness and reputation of Jesus Christ. So he begins this section in verse 1 with these words of endearment. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Are you in the Gospel of John, or are you in First John? We'll, we'll, we'll catch up with that. Yeah, thank you, Pierre. Um, so he begins this section with those words of endearment, and, and like a father, he doesn't want you to sin. He doesn't want you to sin. He knows sin is a destroyer. To guard against anyone who might conclude from the previous passage, as you remember last week, that maybe they might conclude a little sin is going to be all right if you simply confess it, he immediately corrects that faulty logic. He said, I'm not writing to you so that you can just go on sinning as long as you remember to confess it. John says that he is writing to us so we can strive to not sin at all. That's our goal as Christians, to walk as Jesus walked. He said, I'm writing so that you may not sin. 
And although the previous chapter that we've already gone through already makes it clear that everybody sins, that shouldn't give us the impression that we're powerless against it. No, here John says, you have the ability to not sin. As born-again Christians, you've been provided with the indwelling Holy Spirit that provides us with this power to not sin. Unbelievers don't have that restraining influence of the Holy Spirit. They can't follow God. But the indwelt Christian is culpable and capable. When we sin, we realize we're making a choice to disobey God. We don't have to do it. John says, I am writing this to you so that you may not sin. But what if you do sin? And you will, at least to some extent. Well, it continues. It says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And after a strong prohibition to not sin, John says, when it happens, what? We have an advocate with the Father. The imagery supplied by the word advocate here is of a courtroom tribunal. Our advocate acts as a defense attorney. But Jesus is not like many of the defense attorneys today. This verse says that Jesus is what? Our defense attorney is righteous. That means that Jesus isn't like one of those old slime ball defense attorneys who's willing to say anything in order to get you off. No, he wouldn't do that. In fact, Jesus can't do that because in chapter 3, verse 5, that assures us that in him, what? There's no sin, right? And 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 22 tells us that in him there's no deceit in his mouth. So Jesus would never lie to a judge or to his father simply to get us off the hook. Jesus is the righteous. But you don't have to worry that you don't have a good defense strategy. Jesus has a much better defense strategy. So what does he do? I'll tell you what he does. Whenever we sin, as an advocate, Jesus says, Your Honor, my client, he's guilty. You look at your attorney and you say, What? Yes. We enter in, Jesus says, a plea of guilty, Your Honor. Remember, that is our posture from last week. That you confess your sins, you admit that you're a sinner, you know that you're guilty. So you say, Yes, Your Honor. I'm guilty. But what does Jesus do? Verse 2 tells us what he's already done. It says, And Jesus himself is a propitiation for our sins. That means a satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, it says, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus made satisfaction for our sins, for the debt that Christians owe for having committed our sins. And 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore his sins, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. Right? For by his wounds we are healed. Correct. Jesus paid the fine and he did the time. And when the Father calls for sentencing, our advocate st- steps up and says, Your Honor, wait a minute, Your Honor. My cross. My cross. It is finished. 
God says, I'm satisfied with that. That is propitiated. It means there's been satisfaction made. God looks and says, that's just. He said, the the punishment has been paid out. The crime has been paid. The Father says, case dismissed. Case dismissed. As far as the east is from the west, we know that our Father remembers sin no more. Well, in addition, we know that 1 Peter 3.18 assures us that Jesus died once for all sins. Christ's substitution, His satisfaction, is a one-time act, encompassing all sins and offered to the entire world, right? You'll hear some say, well, Jesus paid for my past sins, but then when I come, up, come to faith, I have to make arrangement for my future sins. Have you ever heard that? Either I need to do it through confession or, or penance, or attending church, purgatory, maybe praying the rosary, perhaps by feeding the poor or doing something good, I need to make arrangements for my future sins. You'll hear that from time to time. But I would caution you that you don't want to pay for any of your sins. Not even one of your sins. Because Scripture says that the wages of sin, meaning the payment that is demanded of sin is what? It's death. The payment that is required is death. So the wages of sin, it's not feeding the poor. The wages of sin is not reciting a prayer. The wages of sin is not even confession in front of a priest or at the foot of your bed. It's nothing that you do. The wages of sin is death. You don't want to pay that. That's eternal separation from God for you and I. You don't even want to pay for one. Scripture says that Jesus died once for all sins. So it doesn't matter when your sins occurred, before you came to faith, after you came to faith, when they happened chronologically, because you know what? All of your sins were in the future when Jesus died on that cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus paid the debt for the sins. So knowing that, realizing that, also don't get confused by the words at the end of verse 2 that says that Jesus was the satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Now that doesn't mean that God will ultimately forgive everybody on the planet regardless of whether they believe in Jesus or not. That's not what that is teaching. No, it means that Christ is the Savior of the whole world. He's the only propitiation, the only satisfaction available on behalf of the world. Buddha didn't save China, and the Dalai Lama didn't save Tibet. Jesus saved the world. He's the only Savior. He's the only substitution made available across the entire world. Forgiveness of sins, however, Scripture is very clear on this, is only efficacious to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. John 3.17 For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Notice how much that encompasses. He was sent so that the world might be saved through Him. That's universal in nature of the offer to the world. But that verse continues. And listen to this. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God's Son died to make salvation available to the whole world. But many will decide to not believe. So far, from our text, we know that we're commanded to resist sin. We know we have an advocate if we do sin, right? Praise the Lord. And we have learned that Jesus is a satisfaction, meaning He made payment for our sins. So if you claim to be a Christian here today, you really have two options with what to do with this information. There's one, you can willfully continue sinning and continue piling on the guilt and the punishment and the shame and the embarrassment and the ridicule to Jesus Christ. You can do that. Or, two, you can live a life of righteousness that brings glory to the name of Jesus Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and, what did we read? Live to righteousness. So looking at these two options, one, just continue sinning without care, concern, or trying your best to not sin, which one do you think would bring you greater assurance that you're a Christian? The second one, right? Would that not provide greater assurance? Under those two scenarios, which one do you think you would be able to say with confidence, I know that I know him. Personally, I'm going to step way out on a limb here. And guess that it is the scenario where you decide to obey Jesus Christ and His commandments. But let's look at what the Bible says. Verse 3, it says, By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Huh. Well, it seems that the Bible says that the one who keeps His commandments ought to be able to know that He knows Jesus Christ. They know that they've come to know Him. And this is because of that indwelling testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life. When you're a Christian, and you should know this, you should desire to strive to please God by keeping His commandments. Now let's acknowledge a couple basic things here. Back in chapter 1, we already know that no one has fellowship with God who makes this illogical assertion. Someone who says, I have no sin. That's dismissed in chapter 1. John assures us anyone who says that besides Jesus would be a liar. That's what we learned last week. And of course, in chapter 2 we observe that when we do sin, we have an advocate who immediately pleads our case. The point is this. So to know him cannot in any way suggest that the believer must perfectly keep his commandments. Because we all sin. That would be forcing Scripture to contradict itself. Do you see? Chapter 1 against chapter 2. You must always use what is obvious in Scripture to interpret what is not as certain. You never use a, a remote, a vague, or an isolated verse on its own to interpret what the blatant ob- blatantly obvious is. You always take what is obvious and then you interpret that which is not as obvious. That should be obvious. If you don't, it will cause problems in your interpretations. And you'll find today with a small amount of effort, 
little research, we'll discover that keeping his commandments does not indicate exactly what it might appear to indicate at first glance. So it's helpful to make some careful observations here. Which commandments exactly is John talking about here? Anybody know? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? I see some heads nodding, some cross, some up and down. No, they're not probably the Ten Commandments that God gave to Charlton Heston. I mean Moses on Sinai. We're probably not talking about those Ten Commandments. Let's look at a couple different scenarios. Is he talking about the Levitical laws and ordinances that were given explicitly to Israel? Probably not. What is he talking about? A few years back, you know, I I traveled to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville for a three-day conference. And I was with uh, about 20 other men who were holding Bible studies in, in state capitals, as I was at the time. And while we were there... Uh, the president of Southern Seminary, Al Moeller, came and met with us for a, a sh- briefing on the state of our nation. And Al Moeller greeted us uh, with what I've come to learn over time. Uh, it's his typical greeting. He said, gentlemen, welcome to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he insisted, he went on, he said, and when I say the, I mean the with the definite article. Now what's that mean? Well, for seminarians, in the Greek language, the term tra- that we translate into the is known as, it's, it's identified as a definite article. It means that is the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. To make things simple, what Reverend Moeller was communicating was that we are not guests at a Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, of which there are many. We weren't just at any Southern Baptist Seminary. He said, you are at the Southern Baptist Seminary. You see the point? Now looking at our text again, are these the Ten Commandments? Or is John referring to something else? Well, the text gives us a hint. Uh, It doesn't use the as, as the definite article. Instead, it uses the possessive pronoun, what? His commandments. We are told to keep His commandments. Who is his pointing to? Look back at verse 1 and 2. We see that indicates Jesus Christ is what? The righteous. We know he's our propitiation. And to keep his commandments means that we are to keep the teachings of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament through his life. And it is helpful to understand that the word commandments here, it was a term that was used of commands that were given by a king. These are the commands that are given by a king to his people. They're the commands that Jesus taught us. Now that would include the obvious, the moral commands. Do not steal. Do not covet. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. But it also would include commands, love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing with that? And, Go make disciples of all the nations, right? Give to him who asks, and do not turn away anyone who wants to borrow from you. That's a command. 
And Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. More commandments. How about this one? Store up your treasure in heaven, not on earth. So I know what you're thinking. Well, there's no way to keep all of those commandments perfectly. That's the point. It's not possible even to remember all of those commandments that Jesus gave, much less practice them perfectly. You will not be perfect, but your goal is to be perfect. You're to be perfect as God is perfect, Jesus said. And that means that you don't dismiss Christ's commands because you're seeking to be perfect, right? You have that goal of perfection. Nobody with, with proven character has a goal of mediocre. Everyone strives for perfection that wants to look like Christ. You have to because he's perfect. But let's say with Nathan, for instance, do you ever set a goal in your restaurant for 50% customer service? No. Then then your employees would give what? 25% customer service, right? No one would insult you for going to your staff and saying, we are going to reach 100% customer service this month. No one would think you're goofy in that. Some might not like it. But no, that that is a goal. Even though in a fallen world, he knows that imperfect employees, sin, problems, mechanics, supply chain, it's not going to happen. But the goal is always perfect customer service. A wise theologian once said, actually as John MacArthur said this, Godliness is not the perfection of your life, but it is the direction of your life. That's where we are headed, towards perfection. But to some degree, we're we're all going to fail. That's why we need an advocate. We wouldn't need an advocate if it weren't for the fact that we're going to fail, right? And fortunately, we can look at this text and come to the conclusion, praise the Lord for this, Your salvation does not depend on keeping all the commandments perfectly. You don't believe me? Look at the text again. The text does not say you are saved by keeping His commandments. What does it say? It says that you know that you know Him by keeping His commands. So having that nagging desire to obey Christ's commands is never intended to provide salvation... Instead, it provides a Christian with evidence of salvation. By striving to keep God's commands, Christ's commands, you receive this assurance. You know that you know Him. The Bible never tells us we're saved by keeping His commands. That would be salvation by works. This illustrates that age-old demarcation line between heaven and hell. It goes like this. A Christian is not saved by keeping God's commands. They keep God's commands because what? Because they're saved. That's why we keep His commands. You can't be saved by keeping commandments or the law. Um, That's why salvation is called a gift of grace. It is a gift given to us. But there are a lot of people out there that, that don't want to preach grace. Paul and Timothy ran into a bunch of them. Instead, what did they want to teach, do you remember? They wanted to teach the law, didn't they? 
And Paul says to them, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, these people, they want to be teachers of the law. Even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confidence assertions. They don't get it. But he goes on. Paul says, But if we know that the law is good, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for ungodly and sinners. The law, the Mosaic law, was given not to make a person righteous. It was provided as a tutor to drive us to righteousness, to drive us to mercy, to plead for grace from God. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the law. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, it says. So Christians love grace. Oh, we love grace. It's the self-righteous people who don't like grace. They like the law. The, The Pharisee types like to convince themselves about how righteous they are by how well they keep the law compared to the church across the street. That's what they like to do. So our text today doesn't preach righteousness achieved through keeping the Ten Commandments. But there was a man who tried that once. You might remember in Luke chapter 18, he's referred to as the rich young ruler. You remember that story? Very familiar to the Christians. In that story, a wealthy young ruler came to Jesus with a question. And he said this, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Notice that statement. No one is good except God. Then Jesus said, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And the young man said, What? All of these I have kept since my youth. Do you remember what Jesus told him after that response? Did he say, good job, just keep on with those commandments? No, Jesus did not say that. In fact, by pointing to the commandments, Jesus was trying to prick this young ruler's conscience. Let him know that he hasn't kept them all. And the young man should have said, Well, no one can do that. Even King David never did that. That would have been the right response. But he didn't do that. He said, I've kept them all. My whole life, even since I was a boy. This is even after Jesus had already told him that nobody's good. He didn't see it. And by bringing up the commandments, Jesus was giving this young ruler an opportunity to admit that he hadn't kept them all. It should have been a tutor to him to see, wow, I haven't done that. I haven't been that good. But his pride didn't allow him to see that. So what did Jesus do? Do you remember Jesus' response? He decided to dial up the heat. Just a few notches. Jesus looked at him, and the account in Matthew said that he looked on him with compassion. Compassion means that he 
He was, had concern for that man's soul. And I imagine what Jesus might have been thinking at this point. It's, it's probably like, really? You really think that you've kept all the commandments all your life? This man really thinks that he's something. Sinless, basically. In fact, Jesus might have said to himself, you know what? This guy, he thinks he's me. Sinless. You really think that you're that righteous? So Jesus dials up the heat, and he said something like this to the young man. How about you go and sell everything that you own and give it to the poor? Wow. Wow, how did that go? Jesus, you know, said that foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, he got nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere. Jesus didn't have anything. He told this guy, you do what I've done, right? Sell everything you own if you want to be righteous. You want to be me? That's me. The man went away sad. He'd convinced himself he didn't need a Savior because he was righteous by keeping the commandments. He didn't need the tutor. He saw the commandments as a mechanism, a method to righteousness. But our righteousness is in whom? Jesus Christ. And each time someone thought they actually were keeping the commandments, when Jesus approached him, he'd add a deeper meaning to the commandments, right? They'd think, I kept that. And he'd say, no, if you look with lust on a woman, you're an adulterer. No, you hate your brother murderer he never told us we could keep them perfectly so that's why then uh, our text in first john chapter 2 why then i should say why does he tell us to keep his commandments well, the meaning of this word keep that is interesting it means to keep in view it means to take note and it means to watch over in fact the late Pastor Adrian Rogers again said that he discovered while researching this term that in secular Greek it was used as a nautical term. It was used by sailors to navigate. And they would chart the skies and they discern where the course would be by what? The stars. And they would say that they would keep the stars. They would chart their course They didn't have modern compasses, as you know. They would navigate by the stars at night. They were their guide. And it was possible for a sailor, for his vision to be obscured by clouds at some point. It's possible from the fatigue and everything to even fall asleep at the wheel. In fact, it's even possible that a storm could come up and could blow him off course. But when his vision improves, when he would awake... When that storm would pass, he would do what? He'd look back up again to the stars. And he would readjust his course to come back into alignment with the stars. He would keep the stars. So as a Christian, you know in your heart that you know God by a compelling desire to navigate your life according to the commandments. That is your heart's desire, is to navigate... To chart your life, not by your carnal desires, but by God's commandments. You don't chart your course by how much money you can make, 
by sex, by greed, by power, or by drugs. That's not what is charting your decisions. Your decisions are being charted by keeping his commandments. There are many who do chart their life by the carnal. We know that. Many of them even consider themselves Christian. Look at verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. This person is not concerned about following Christ's commands. Um, His heart makes no attempt to try and navigate his life according to what he reads in the Bible. That person has no right to claim Christianity. There's no assurance in that situation. They can't be certain of anything. There are also two other ways that we can know that we know Christ. There in verse 5 and 6, if you'll read with me, it says, But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. So keeping the word, uh, that's very similar to the principle last week that we talked about, walking in the light. You remember that, so we won't go deeper into that. Walking by God's word, lighting your path by God's truth. And the person who abides in Christ ought to desire to walk in a manner which Jesus walked, right? That's not vague. That's what we want to do. We want to walk as Jesus walked. But be careful. Some people take this to bizarre extremes. They really do. They will say, well, Jesus never owned a house, so I'm not going to own a house. They'll say things like, he had no place to lay his head, so I'm not going to get a bed. I'm going to lie on the floor. Do you see how that can become bizarre? It just gets ridiculous sometimes. But in reading the Bible, especially the Gospels, which describe Christ's life and how he walked, we should have that desire to look more like what we see. It takes time. It takes a lot of time. Many of you here have been studying this book a lot longer than I have even. And think of all the commands in it. Can you remember all the commands that are in this book? Can you remember every precept, law, every illustration? I can't. I can't remember them all. And the more I learn, the more I find myself falling short as I continue to read Scripture and recall what it says. But I think you and I can both honestly say, if we're Christian, we can both honestly say that when we look at the Bible and we see what it's teaching, we want to do that. We want to look like that. We want to overcome our sinful nature and look like that because we love Christ, we've been born again. And that compelling desire that you have to look like Jesus assures you that you know that you know Jesus. Do you have a desire to follow Jesus? Do you want to follow him? Have you never fallen him, followed him? Do you want to be one of his disciples and then now navigate your life according to his word? Do you want to learn the Bible? Do you want to stop charting your your course of life by natural desires to get ahead? Today offers you the God offers you that ability to rechart your life. 
to realign, to change course to follow Jesus Christ. And I don't mean without a home or a bed. You can have those things. But without concern about what the world threatens you with. The threatens it, threatens, threatening that you get about not achieving enough. About not making enough money. About not being pretty enough. The world tells you, you need to be this. God can straighten that life and rechart it. So that you know that you don't need to be concerned about what the world desires of you. All you need to be concerned about is what God desires of you. Listen as we close. If we want to walk like he walked, Jesus said this. This would be from Matthew chapter 6. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own, right? Let's turn to him. Saved or unsaved today, why don't you pray right now to restore your life to keeping his commandments? Lord Jesus, we confess to you, Lord God, that, that we are not perfect, though you are, Lord God, and, and we seek to be like you. We seek to imitate you in all that we do, Lord. But we fall, we trip, Lord, and we miss the mark, Lord. We pray that now you would guide our hearts to, to find out more about Jesus Christ by reading our Bible, by studying it, Lord, by listening to you, to your word, Lord God. And we pray that you would guide us to a course that would be within the guidelines of keeping your commandments, Lord, that you'd use that to steer us away from turmoil and trouble and destruction. Lord, if anyone's here that uh, doesn't know you, Lord, we pray that they would now turn their life towards you, towards Christ, Lord, and know that sin draws them away from you, that sin causes destruction, and ultimately, Lord, can lead to death if they do not repent. So, Lord, we pray for anyone here that has not repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. Know that he had died for them, for them in their place, Lord. We pray that you would do that work in their heart now. Lord, thank you for the grace you've given us. Thank you for the heart you've given us to want to live a life that's pleasing to you. And strengthen us to walk like Jesus every day. In his name we pray. Amen.